Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio today with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, everybody. And of course, his right-hand man. How do you say it? You say it fast, and it always sounds great. (sighs) My right-hand man, protege, and all-around good guy, Sean Richards, is back. Yay. Welcome, Sean. I hope you're feeling better, brother. I'm not, but I am <laughs> legally allowed to enter these halls again. So. Oh, okay. Well, as long as you don't cough in my direction, I got three little boys. <laughs> yeah, you've probably got worse stuff than I do. I, they're like little running around germ factories, that's for sure. <laughs> well, good, good for your immune system, though. Yeah, I'm after, healthier than after ever. After all <laughs> the bugs work their way through your system. <laughs> yeah, and in two years of practical lockdowns, anyway, or a year of lockdowns. So, oh, gosh. You know, but, uh, Anyhow, uh, we're so grateful to be here, and happy Friday. We're hoping that you'll have a blessed weekend. This is A Reason for Hope, a weekday Bible answer program where you, the audience, ask questions of our studio hosts about whether or not Christianity is true, like, for example, God's existence or the resurrection or the preservation of the Bible. Or perhaps you want to know how to apply a specific passage to your life. Maybe you want to know the meaning of Philippians 1 whatever it might be. So we would appreciate you engaging with us. We're here to serve you, to help you find good reasons for hope, not just hope in life, but hope in eternal life. And of course, that can only be brought about <clears throat> when we have a personal relationship with the one who made us, our creator. So there are multiple ways that you can engage with us. You can join us online, live stream from 5 to 6 p.m. every weekday Mountain Standard Time. You can join us on Facebook where we uh, live stream. Our Facebook handle is at CCF Tucson. So just go to Facebook.com, type in that handle, or you can just search first Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And you can, <clears throat> we would really love if you would like our page as well as um, uh, engage with us during the program and uh, use the chat box and simply ask your question right, in the comments. And we monitor those throughout the entire hour. And if you ask a question that seems sincere and related to the Christian faith, then we'd be happy to take your question. And if we miss it, we will add it to the next day's list of questions and we'll try to get to it. So if you get missed, tune in the next couple days. We'll probably get to it eventually. You can also catch us on YouTube. Go to YouTube. You can uh, watch the program live there, ask your questions as well as uh, like like you would in Facebook by using the comment section. And we would appreciate if you'd subscribe, hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services uh, Mondays, I'm sorry, Sundays and on Wednesdays. So if you want to listen to us go through the books of the Bible as we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Currently on Sundays, we're going through the book of Acts. And on Wednesdays, we are going through the book of Ezekiel. So very exciting stuff. Definitely tune in. If you want to catch the entire series, just go to our website and you can catch that, and I'll go through that in a moment. But if you're on YouTube, you can go to A Reason for Hope 546. That's our handle. Or just search for A Reason for Hope, and you'll find us there. We archive our live streams on Rumble, just just out of concern that maybe we might say something that might bother some people and that we will no longer be uh, able to access Facebook or YouTube. So we just go ahead and very uh, little chance of that happening around here. It's inconceivable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you can go to Rumble, and and uh, if you wouldn't mind following us, uh, eventually we'll hope to live stream there. But right now we're not live streaming. But you can catch our archives, and we uh, usually title each show by the top three questions asked. So if you want to browse and look through past programs, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, or Rumble, you can actually figure out Uh, what questions are dealt with on those programs. We also live stream to our website, so if you'd prefer to avoid social media altogether, you can go to our 
website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and hit the watch live in our navigation. And not only can you watch the live stream, but there's a little chat box where you can ask your questions. And there's a prayer button, so if you have something that you would like us to go before the Lord on your behalf, then feel free to take advantage of that. <clears throat> we also have an app. If you're part of our community and would love to stay more connected via the calendar of events, um, listening to live streams, past sermons, going in through our sermon archives, I'd encourage you to check it out. You can download that from the uh, Apple or Google Play Store, and it's got really great features. You can even follow along in a little digital Bible that's built right into it. You can highlight text, leave notes, join chat groups, so much more. So I'd encourage you to download that if you, as I said, are part of our community. And uh, finally, if you want to ask your questions more discreetly and you want us to handle those questions on this program, you can also just email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And last but not least, I'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor on Twitter. His Twitter handle, handle is at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H. It's a very informative and uh, very entertaining Twitter feed, so I'd encourage you to check it out. Before we continue, we always like to take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us before we take your questions. So, uh, Sean, would you be so kind? I will do my best, yeah. Dad, thank you that we have the honor of being here. We want to invite you to be here as well, not because we're owed anything from you, but we're coming to you desiring your word and fellowship with you once again. Allow that to be something that fulfills your promises and gives us a greater understanding of your heart and your presence in our lives. We thank you for your mercy. and We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Do you uh, have anything you want to share? Before oh, boy, yeah. Get? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I'm sensing a prophecy update yes, right now. Yes, there's, there's one warming up in the bullpen. Um, if you've been with us on uh, the program, you know that uh, we've been spending quite a bit of time talking about uh, events in Israel this week. This was the week of uh, the Jewish, I wouldn't say holiday, it was the day of mourning called Tishba Av, the ninth of the Jewish month of Av. Uh, that commemorates, uh, interestingly enough, the day that uh, both Solomon and uh, Solomon's temple and uh, the uh, rebuilt temple under uh, Herod the Great were both destroyed. Uh, and, uh, and so it is considered a day of mourning, a day of fasting, a day of uh, prayer and introspection uh, for the people of Israel. But it can also be a very controversial day as well. Uh, if uh, you've been with us, you know, we talk a bit about Israeli politics and uh, some of the more noteworthy individuals that make up the current coalition government that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has put together. Uh, one of uh, these individuals, Ithamar Ben-Giver, uh, is the National Security Minister, and uh, he uh, created a, quite a stir on uh, Thursday when he decided to visit the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, specifically in honor of Tish B'Av. Uh, this is the third time that he has done this. Uh, the first time happened in January, uh, and that caused Israel to be roundly uh, condemned by uh, world leaders. Uh, his second visit took place uh, in May, just two days after Jerusalem Day, which is the day uh, on the Israeli calendar where they celebrate uh, the fact that they retook the entire city of Jerusalem, including the east side of Jerusalem that was controlled by Jordan during the Six-Day War. Well, accompanying him on this visit uh, were a, a couple of uh, heavy hitters. Uh, one of them 
was the uh, Negev and Galilee Development Minister, a man by the name of Yitzhak Wasserloff, uh, and uh, a, uh, another heavy hitter in the Likud party, of which Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, is a member. Uh, Amit Halevi was there as well. Now, where it got really interesting uh, was, uh, first of all, during his Temple Mount visit, the fact that he was there is considered uh, a provocation by the Muslims. It's a reminder to them that they no longer control this area, although they do in a, uh, a agreement called the Status Quo Agreement, a very disagreeable group uh, that Sean and I would bear witness to uh, from our visits to uh, to Israel, uh, called the Waqfa, uh, oversees uh, the area of the Temple Mount. They are Muslims. Uh, among other things you can expect out of the Waqfa, if you are a uh, even a Christian couple holding hands, they will come up and hit you with a stick and tell you to stop that because uh, this is their noble sanctuary. If you use the term Temple Mount, temple in any sense, they will come up and begin screaming in your face, not Temple Mount, noble sanctuary. Uh, and uh, it uh, is uh, very interesting to see them in action. Well, uh, Ithamar Ben-Giver uh, goes up on the Temple Mount. Uh, Israel has this agreement with the Jordanians, uh, an olive branch that they held out to the Muslim world saying, look, we want peace with you. We will even allow you to control uh, this particular site in spite of the fact that uh, most Muslims, uh, when Israel took uh, East uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount area, fully expecting to bulldoze uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, the Dome of the Rock and rebuild uh, the temple on its historic site. Uh, well, a very uh, secular uh, Jew who was in charge of the Israeli Defense Forces uh, decided that that would not happen and came up with this particular agreement. It's been in place ever since. But this agreement is starting to get more and more rocky, uh, if you will, not only because of the fact, pun intended, uh, that uh, the Muslims often will throw rocks from the top of the Temple Mount area on the Jews along the Western Wall who are praying uh, at that particular place. But uh, also, uh, this fellow Ben Giver uh, made a couple of statements. So one of the statements he made went like this. On this day, in this place, it's very important to remember that we are all brothers, right wing, left wing, religious, secular. We are all the same people. When a terrorist looks out the window, he doesn't discriminate between us. Unity is important, and love of Israel is important. He also called for Israel to increase its control over the Temple Mount. And this is where things can really get interesting in a big-time hurry. He said this, This place is the most important place for the people of Israel, where we need to return and show our governance. Uh, Wasserloff posted a message to social media following the visit, calling uh, the Temple Mount the holy place of the people of Israel. On this day, more than ever, may we be granted complete redemption and the building of the temple soon in our days. Amen. Well, as you can probably imagine, Palestinian and Arab media criticized Ben Giver's visit with the Palestinian Chronicle running the headline, Ben Giver added again, extremist minister storms Al-Aqsa Mosque. <laughs> that must, would have been something to, uh, to see. Uh, Palestinian Authority spokesman Nabil Abu Rudineh called uh, Ben Giver's visit dangerous and said it contributes to the escalation, uh, escalation of the situation. Hamas spokesman Hazim Kassem, we would expect nothing but moderate uh, statements from Hamas, of course, uh, said, we condemn the arrival of the Israeli National Security Minister to the Temple Mount site and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, Al-Majal also warned that allowing extremists to the site could lead to further violence. The extremists storming 
this is the word they're using, is an example of an illegal, inflammatory, and blatant move against the law and history of the site. Israel has no sovereignty over occupied Palestine. The continued Israeli provocations and breaches of history and law could result in a new area of escalations and violence. Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem uh, dutifully criticized Ben Giver's visit to the Temple Mount. Uh, they said the U.S. stands firmly for the preservation of the historic status quo with respect to holy sites in Jerusalem. That is, uh, don't let it get into your mind that there could be a temple coming anytime soon. Uh, the Kingdom of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt condemned Ben Giver's presence on the Temple Mount, calling it a provocation. In other words, just the fact that he went to the Temple Mount uh, was over the top for them. Uh, Israeli police said they arrested at least uh, 16 Jewish worshipers and two Arabs for clashes with police and for causing disturbances on the Temple Mount site. In other words, if um, the Waqfa sees you uh, adopting, say, the posture of prayer, lifting your hands, folding your hands, bowing uh, on that particular site, uh, they call the Israeli police and the Israeli police drag you off and arrest you. So uh, again, uh, over 1,700 Jews have ascended the Temple Mount during visitation hours this year, which is a significant increase over previous years. Now, why is this so significant prophetically? Well, it's another uh, inching step, if you will, uh, toward the idea of the rebuilding of the Jewish temple on its historic site. Mm. Why is that prophetically significant? For two very important reasons. First of all, in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, uh, we are told the apostle John was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. They will tread the holy city under month, uh, underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Well, once again, a pivotal part of the tribulation period is going to be events that take place not at, just at the Temple Mount, but at the rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount. Uh, we're told in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26 that one of the things that the Antichrist referred to there as the prince who is to come will accomplish is making a strong covenant with many nations that will allow the temple to be rebuilt on its historic site. Why do we know this? Because we are told at the three and a half year mark of this seven year agreement, uh, he will do away with sacrifice and offerings and bring about the abomination that causes desolation. Now, what is the abomination that causes desolation? Well, in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are told about another event that will take place during the tribulation period. We are told in verse 9, or I should say we should actually uh, begin at verse 3, 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 2, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. They should believe the lie that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So what we see here is a key event in the tribulation period is at the beginning of the seven years. What really kicks off that final seven-year period described in the book of Daniel chapter 9 is the signing of this strong covenant, this peace treaty with many nations that will allow Israel to rebuild its temple on its historic site and share the temple mount with the Gentiles. In other words, uh, it's fascinating that uh, not only do we see in Revelation chapter 11, but also in the book of Ezekiel, that there is a wall described that separates the holy place from the common. The word common there in Hebrew can also mean profane. Well, when you begin to understand that written on the outside of the Al-Aqsa Mosque are the words, God is not begotten, neither does he beget, uh, that's pretty obscene as far as God that's is concerned. That's the spirit concerned. of Antichrist. That's, that's <laughs> as uh, blasphemous as you can possibly get. Mm. So uh, what we're seeing here with what's going on with Ben Giver and uh, these bold statements saying that we need to increase our control over this site. This is not just some backbencher, if you will, or some uh, minor political hack or you know, a part of some fringe group here. He is the national security minister and his particular coalition block uh, that uh, unites with uh, the, uh, the coalition that Benjamin Netanyahu has put together literally causes the Netanyahu government to stand or fall. This fellow's got leverage like you would not believe. So, you know, the controversy that is going on with uh, judicial reform in Israel that seemingly has become everybody's business in the world, um, the idea that uh, the uh, Jewish Supreme Court cannot throw out a duly passed law of the Knesset because of a standard of reasonableness. This is an unreasonable law, they would say. They don't need to explain why. They just say, well, it just doesn't, you know, it kind of harshes my mellow, in other words. It's not uh, yummy for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you know, this controversy is going on there. Uh, we talked yesterday about how uh, the powers that be as far as <coughs> Israel's enemies and uh, Iran, uh, the Al-Quds force, and uh, their wholly owned subsidiaries like Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad and so forth, uh, had a meeting together and they said, uh, we're not going to attack them right now because they're tearing each other apart. Mm-hmm. Um, why would we want to do that when they're doing our job for us? If, uh, as we saw in the Jerusalem Post today, 10,000 uh, Jewish military reservists said they will not serve if they are called up in protest over this judicial reform. So you've got real struggles that are going on in Israel. Then a guy like Ithamar Ben Giver comes on the scene and first gives this unity message, well, we're all Israelis and the terrorists see us all alike and we should all band together so far so good. But then when he turns around and begins to say, and by the way, this Temple Mount area is our property and we should start treating it as such. Uh, Paraphrasing there, but not taking too many liberties. Fascinating developments Mm -hmm. there because we are seeing that tide moving in that direction along with the increase of Jewish people wanting to visit the Temple Mount. Not like, uh, you know, you go with us on our 2025 trip to Israel we've got coming up. We'll go on the Temple Mount. Very easy for tourists to have um, access to the Temple Mount. 
Uh, but if you're Jewish, that is very, very tightly restricted. Not every Jewish person who wants to can go up on the Temple Mount whenever they wish to go and up And you there. absolutely cannot pray. Absolutely. Or at least not be shown to be praying. <laughs> yes, absolutely, unless you want to get in big-time trouble and end mm. up in an Israeli jail. Can I ask a, side, a little side question? Sure. Now, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. What year was the Alaska Mosque built? And did they try to build it where the Holy of Holies would have been? And now historians have seemed to discover that no they missed it the temple was actually on the opposite end so that they literally could build the temple without actually touching the mosque is that correct i uh, defer to my uh, resident uh, uh islamic polemicist you you debate these folks on a regular basis so yeah you learn things when you look stupid the first time um when it comes to the history of the Al-Aqsa mosque and there's another thing i want to add to this too by the way that'll show good news as far as uh, Hebrew progress and actually, you know, doing with their land what they want, but or God's land, excuse me. But what's interesting about this, uh, you mentioned the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's hilariously been rebuilt, built, and built again 20 times since it was first constructed oh. by, I think his name was Abdel Malik in the mm-hmm. mid-7th century, and this is 80, by the way, modern calendar. And what's also interesting about that is every single time it's been demolished, uh, there was one incident where it was at the hands of other Muslims, but the majority of the times where they needed to renovate or had to deal with major structural issues was because of earthquakes. <laughs> that, that just tickles <laughs> me pink. Yeah. But uh, if we're going to be looking at this situation, and people are obviously looking at the geographical, I guess, intelligence surrounding Israel right now, you've got basically the Muslim world. You've got Saudi Arabia literally next door. You've got Iran, the most fundamental radicals staging operations in Lebanon and in Jordan. You've got the, you know, Malaysian uh, reservist at the ready, and basically the entireties of Pakistan and most of India, where you would look at all this and say, well, Israel is going to be overwhelmed by sheer numbers if you have all these Muslims that are united under what we would call a caliph, a successor of the prophet, and they were to regard that authority like ISIS tried to do, and still is, then you would have basically an unstoppable tide. It would be the Gog and Magog invasion, right? Well, not so fast, because while we are told that there is going to be a Persian-led invasion of Israel in the last days, there's also an event going on that people who are in the know about Islamic polemics right now, uh, people who are combating and confronting Islamic claims and so forth on the internet. The Islamic scholar Belial Phillips produced a video last year where people in the dozens, if not hundreds, have personally come to him saying that I'm a quiet apostate, that because of the death penalty for leaving Islam, that is the only reason, by the way, that Islam even got off the ground, they are atheists in all but reputation. They still go to the mosque, they still do the prayers in public, they still fast, but as far as their fundamental beliefs, the sort of things they would go to war over, they have no hold, no say, and no certainly emotional sway in wanting to tear down the Hebrew people on the principle that Muhammad said so. And what's also interesting about this is that he used the word, this is a quote, an avalanche of apostasy is coming. Mm. And this has been over a year ago. Right now there are imams that have come to him and others who Mm. are confessing to being atheists or 
just non-believers, agnostics, because they're seeing more and more upon the advent of the Internet what Islam's all about and want nothing to do with it. What's also interesting is that when you see these cultural expectations and so forth, much like here in the United States, if you see the zeitgeist and the spirit of the age, it seems like everyone and its dog is transgender, but the reality is that this is just a very loud and a very obnoxious minority. What's interesting, though, is that in the Islamic world, it's that to a degree where it's holding the very foundations of Islam in kind of trepidation, if you want to mm. use the term. When we're talking about this, even now we were, um, we, I mean, uh, people who are studying this alongside me, laughing at Pakistani teachers that were literally crying on air, talking about how they ought to resort to burning villages to the ground to stop more and more people becoming public with their unbelief. They don't care if people are closet Muslims or not. They just want the names of Allah and his successors honored or excuse me, Muhammad and his successors honored, but I repeat myself. The point being made, though, is this. When we're looking at Israel and we're seeing them not only under the constant guard of the armies of the Lord, where we see rockets being fired and literal freak gusts of wind knock them off course and into an inconsequential location, when we see this constant trend of terrorist attacks and terrorist waves and intifadas and so forth, failing miserably. It's not because of the incompetence of the Arab religion or the Arab people. It's because not only is God on our side, but their God isn't even in their hearts, in their minds. Most of them aren't even Muslims anymore, and they won't be public with it out of fear. So when we're looking at the potential of you know, the sleeper cells and so forth, all of the terrorists in waiting and people who are going to strike the moment that a Hebrew politician gets out of line, the numbers and the damage that they're capable of is going to be a lot smaller than you think. Because as a result of the work that God is doing in the hearts and minds mm -hmm. of the Muslim world right now, their strength is about about the same as what we saw the Persian Empire was at the time of Alexander the Great. Mm. Uh, a five foot two um, Turkish woman by the name of Hatun Tash is able to wreak havoc on the entire Islamic world just by holding up two books and telling them to read it. The facts are coming out and people are starting to take this seriously. The good news in that regard is that the people of God are safer than they would be mm. if every single Muslim took their faith seriously. But the bad news of that is that, as I've stated, most of these people are becoming atheists or agnostics, not darkening the doors of any religious system because they've seen what the concept of God does to people's minds. And if your only impression of that is Islam, I get it. But we need to make sure that not only is the absurdity of Islam available, but the gospel is accessible as well. When it comes to this ongoing reality of the avalanche of apostasy, pray that it turns into a tsunami of conversion, a revival mm. in the Muslim world, which is ripe for the taking, because as a result of what, uh, well, basically the world is doing in their minds, Christians, atheists, and any other group, Hindus even alike, they're pointing out that Islam has no foundations, but we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us, that maybe if we come to someone who's putting on the devout garb, who's wearing their Islamic cap, or the wife is wearing her hijab or burqa, and they're keeping up appearances because they don't want to be honor killed by their family members for disgracing the name of their, their, their God, what 
fills in that gap. Mm. You replace a false God with a true God. You replace a false hope with the true gospel. Mm-hmm. And that's what needs to be taken advantage of now more than ever, because especially with Aloxa and the shaky foundations, they can keep trying to rebuild it, but it doesn't mean that that stone and everything engraved on it is a lie. And more and more people are starting to read it for themselves. Now, would it be possible, though, that, that the new temple could be built without touching the mosque, though? And I have, you know, there's, there's <laughs> differing ideas on that. Um, you know, I mean, wh- what would your take be, Sean? Well, I have two opinions on this. Either by the time the Antichrist takes power, Islam has all but collapsed as a belief system, and it's purely a ceremonial one. If you go to Israel today, and we've all been here, uh, you know that it isn't just the Al-Aqsa Mosque that's built there. It isn't Dome of the, the Dome Rock, of the yeah. Rock. Yeah. It's the mosque and then the Dome of the Rock. Those yeah. are two separate buildings, yeah. by mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. But they would literally set up what they're called kiblas, this little stone, basically, as a direction for pl- uh, prayer and then a platform for the local attendees to do their prayers and ablutions on. Now, what's interesting about that is that they're pockmarked everywhere because even they knew. You mean for Muslims to do their prayers in the apartheid state called Israel? Yes. (laughs) uh, I'm saying that sarcastically, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, amusing. (laughs) But the funny thing about that is they just covered the place with them because they themselves knew that the Al-Aqsa Mosque wasn't for certain where the Holy of Holies was. Mm. Whenever you build a mosque on top of a holy sacred site, we see this in India, we see this in Turkey, we see this in Greece. Every time that Islam takes over a nation, they make sure to build their temples on top of the false gods' idols. Uh, The best example of this is the Hagia Sophia. But when we're Mm. talking about this whole issue and concern of, well, how are we going to compartmentalize this? First of all, I have absolute confidence that Islam may collapse. But even if it doesn't, the spirit of the Antichrist, I have absolute confidence the same spirit that's deceiving them now will get them to just lockstep in line the moment that he uses his influence in another direction. I think it'll be purely ceremonial. But if, on the other hand, we're to say, you know, just the immature attempts of them making sure they can't build anything on it because that platform and that stone counts as a mosque. Mm-hmm. You can't bulldoze our mosque. It would be storming the Al-Aqsa yes. Mosque. It'd be yeah, bulldozing. It's very interesting it. how they use that word repeatedly. Yeah. It's almost like uh, that was uh, put out across uh, various media platforms uh, in the Muslim world. We have to use that word storming to describe what went on there. Well, it's the same kind of rhetoric they use at the Intifada. It's the same kind of rhetoric they used to inspire the 1948 war and so on and so or the Six Days War and so on and so forth. They have no problem manipulating people. It's a literal charter in their religion to deceive you for the betterment of the community. But if we're going to talk about the actual issues at hand, the Al-Aqsa Mosque coexisting with the temple, it's an open question whether the Al-Aqsa Mosque will be the reason it'll be cut off from the profane. It's got some history to it. I wouldn't want to see it torn down. But the fact that they covered the place with it shows that even they don't know where the Mm. temple is, and I think that's a good sign. Yeah, there's different ideas about it. Um, One spot on the Temple Mount that was really kind of uh, was a little spooky to me in a sense is that there is a, uh, a place uh, pretty much on uh, the uh, north uh, west corner of the complex and you'll see you know there's a, a little tiny sort of uh, a shade over the top of it and it's a uh, rectangular uh, kind of a spot that's probably about oh like around what, 12 feet long and about five feet wide. It's got a little popcorn machine in front of it. Yeah, but, uh, but uh, 
there are those who believe that that might have been the place, the location of the Holy of Holies. And one of the reasons that uh, Orthodox Jews, the, the ultra-Orthodox, uh, forbid their people from going up on this place is the possibility of accidentally uh, walking into the Holy of Holies and not being the high priest and violating right. yeah, all that of that. Sense. So, um, you know, do we know where this is? You know, I've talked with some of our tour guides, uh, and they say that if, in fact, this northwest corner was the place where it is, and you have to realize that uh, the top of this thing, you know, has undergone some pretty significant military damage over the years. The Romans just really plowed the place, and, you know, uh, when, when the uh, Bar Kochva rebellion uh, went on. Uh, we don't really know for sure, but some of them have told me that if this is in fact the spot, uh, the entire temple uh, could be rebuilt without doing any kind of interference with the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock. Mm. Uh, so, and that does seem to be, uh, you know, this dividing wall that is described in Revelation chapter 11 and in the book of Ezekiel, separating the holy place from the common or the profane, um, does seem like it could be a, a possibility. And since it does appear with the prophecies about Mystery Babylon, that uh, initially the Antichrist is going to have to play ball with a one-world kind of uh, old age, new age movement kind of a thing, uh, at least for the first part of the tribulation until he decides, I've had enough of you and you're, you're <laughs> gone. Um, it, it does seem to me that uh, if uh, we, we see the Antichrist coming to power, uh, we see this, you know, all religions teach the same thing, the coexist bumper sticker on steroids mentality behind all of that. Well, what greater tribute mm. to the fact that we're all really just worshiping the same God with different names than allowing, you know, this temple to be rebuilt and, uh, you know, the Muslims and the yeah. Jews coming together and, and, uh, and celebrating unite everybody somehow and it's going to have to be some kind of ecumenical and, and, and as far as israel is concerned you know we're very pro-israel here but we are, are not ignorant of the fact that in the book of isaiah we are told that at one point israel is going to have uh, a covenant with death it's going to seek to mm -hmm. find its security underneath all of that that things are going to get very dark before israel turns and understands who their Messiah is. Another whole discussion, yeah. but uh, I really believe that when God supernaturally intervenes and destroys the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39, mm -hmm. the coalition of nations on the mountain of Israel, supernaturally, uh, Israel is going to know, according to that prophecy, from that time onward that the Lord is God. They won't mm -hmm. turn to idols any longer. Uh, the Antichrist won't have it. And then we see prophecies like uh, Zechariah chapter 9 and so forth, where two-thirds of uh, Israel is going to get wiped out uh, during that tribulation period. So uh, dark days ahead, but uh, Messiah is going to return and uh, reestablish everlasting righteousness, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for those uh, 144,000 evangelists who will see a lot of people come to faith. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So well, thank you. So lots to talk about here, but yeah. questions too. <laughs> yeah, Gil wants to know um, the uh, John 3.8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I uh, just wanted to know, um, what does it mean? Uh, 
What does that mean? In a word, it's saying that what the spirit does isn't visible, but it impacts the real. And Nicodemus, this whole conversation was a back and forth about what's this whole thing about being born again? And Jesus says, unless one's born of the spirit and water, then he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is trapped in the physical. He's like, how do I enter back into my mother's womb and be born? There's an image. And Jesus says this. He says, the spirit's like the wind. You don't see it, but you see where it goes. The same is the truth as the verse ends uh, with that point. So everyone who is born of the Spirit, it's an inward work, not an external factor. It's not you biologically re-entering this world. It's you entering into a new relationship with God. Jesus is clarifying to Nicodemus, you're looking at the material, I'm talking about the spiritual. And the conversation continues with him not getting it. And Jesus proverbially slacks, slaps him beside the head and says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You're, you're supposed to be all about the spiritual. <laughs> but uh, that that's the point of verse 8. It's emphasizing the spirit is not a visible act, but it is an action nonetheless. Yeah, yeah I think that's great. Well, thank you for that. And uh, moving on, we will uh, go to Oppenheimer, Oppen, Oppenheimer fan. Isn't it true God wants us to find certain things out for ourselves? nuclear fission, atoms, possibly life on other planets. That's why God didn't mention these in the Bible. We weren't ready for this information yet. Uh, thanks. Um, uh, so is it possible that there are, and then there's another follow-up question, I guess. So there, it's possible there is life on other planets, and it's not important for us to know, or is it it's for us to find out for ourselves as we are doing now, which one is it? So kind of like a general revelation versus God actually specifically revealing some things in scripture, not general revelation in the sense of exclusively about God himself, but about nature, the universe, things that God intends us to discover, yeah. especially with uh, his interest in life on other planets. Well, you know, first of all, uh, we need to understand something. The Bible uh, is a uh, book with a limited purpose. Its main purpose is to tell us uh, who we are as human beings, how we got into this situation we are in right now. It tells us about the God who loves us, uh, who we have rebelled against, what God did about that rebellion, how he revealed himself uh, and prepared to enter into this world by setting aside uh, an individual by the name of Abraham who would have a nation, a specific nation that uh, would be his offspring and that from that nation, one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, uh, from uh, the line of King David would come God in human flesh walking among us. Uh, the gospel accounts give us the blow-by-blow the, uh, -blow description, the uh, front-row setter uh, view of what it was when God walked among us in the person of Jesus and what he said to us about a relationship with him. Uh, it, it's interesting that at the end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 21 and verse 25, we are told there are also many other things that Jesus did, which were, were written one by one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Uh, so uh, when we stop and think about the subject matter of the Bible and the fact that it is, as the acronym goes, God's basic instructions before leaving earth, you know, we could ask the question, well, why doesn't... Uh, you know, why don't we have a chapter in the Bible explaining uh, how uh, Saturn's rings are able to coalesce when it seems like that's gravitationally impossible? Or, or uh, you know, why doesn't it give us a, a, a unified field theory or, or some things along these lines? Well, it's not that God couldn't do it. It's just that that was beyond what was going on at that particular point. Uh, you know, and when you're in a life or death situation, 
right? Uh, suddenly the focus of attention becomes very, very narrow. A couple of years back, I had cancer surgery. And uh, when I was, uh, you know, my last few minutes talking to the doctors before they, they put me under, uh, you know, I didn't look at the doctor and say to him, well, gee, how do you think uh, the Wildcats are gonna do this year? Mm. You know, uh, it, it was not because Arizona wasn't going to have a season or that I, you know, didn't care about that in sort of an oblique way, but because my life was literally on the line, I listened very intently to everything that doctor had to say about what was about to happen to me, what kind of anesthesia I was going to be given, how long I was going to be under, the uh, amazing, uh, marvelous mechanism they were going to use uh, to be able to deal with my cancer with as, as little intrusion as possible. Uh, they, they call it astronaut surgery because they literally put you up on a, uh, this, uh, this series of uh, pulleys and, and wires and turn you about you know, while the uh, uh, surgeon does this thing. Uh, watching a TV screen and, and using these uh, amazing probes. And they're, they're explaining all this to me, you know. And so while they're explaining this to me, I'm not going, well, you know, could you explain to me like Ohm's law that makes some of these things possible? Well, I'm not really interested in Ohm's law mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in what it means for them to save my life. Mm -hmm. And so when we see the Bible and we see its focus there, uh, the Bible does touch on matters of history. It does... Uh, deal with the issue of origins. It does deal uh, with anthropology, how people got scattered all across the earth, why everywhere you go in this world, there's a uh, this, this seemingly consistent uh, view of how there was one God and uh, that man rebelled and there was a flood and one man and his family survived in a boat with animals. Uh, you know, we do see details like this. Mm -hmm. And where the Bible does touch on the physical and where it does touch on the scientific, it is absolutely correct, but it is not its intention to be a science book. It's not intended to be a book on astrobiology mm -hmm. or uh, astronomy. It is intended to tell us what a relationship with him is all about. Now, as far as space monkeys are concerned, does the Bible deal with that issue at all, Sean? Well, it deals with it in the sense, and not to burst your bubble, but I'll draw the pin anyway, uh, to deal with it in such a way where we're told enough about our own salvation, where the concept or idea of conscious and morally accountable life, terms usually used as sentient, but we're talking about ethics here, you'll see why in a moment, is not likely, if not impossible. And the reason for that is, firstly, because we're told in the book of Romans chapters 5 and 8 that not only was all of creation, like the whole thing, like what did God make? That was affected by Adam's sin. Through one man, sin right. entered to all for all sinned. That would be an awkward engagement and encounter if because of our actions sentient morally accountable independent intelligent life was existing in other worlds apart from yeah. us right <laughs> yeah. but if on the other hand we through direct association with adam being his biological descendants that does make sense because it would be a system god could work both ways read romans 5 but if on the other hand or 5 and 6 read the whole book romans is great but when we're talking <laughs> about the whole issue of the fact that god has not only centered his dealings on the earth but all that we're told about is the earth you have to either go a fallacious route, logically, and say, well, we're not told anything, therefore that means everything. Or we're not told enough, 
Therefore, that's permission for me to say more than what's there, to read into what isn't there. And so either way, I end up working basically uh, not just uh, sawing off the tree branch I'm trying to sit on, but trying to sit on a tree branch that I constructed with my imagination. It's it's the same result, you're going to fall. So when we're told by the government, ironically, whenever there's a botched trial or false accusations or military scandal or you name it, suddenly uh, we have new information from this uh, ex-government agent that aliens are Biologics. Yes, Yes. that'll do. I've never heard that term before. That was pretty cool. Cynicism is becoming more and more jaded. Uh, There's a a British saying, I won't cite the exact source, but hope in man is the first step on the road to disappointment. You can always count on those with power to abuse it and to deceive. But if on the other hand, we're just going to say, you know, I'm just so invested and borderline obsessed with the idea that there has to be life on other planets, we need to examine the thought process. It's not oh, a cosmic waste of space. Of course it isn't. God's eternal nature is revealed in the vastness of the cosmos. Yeah, his oh. weight, his glory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, how, how could all of these things be just so far bizarre out there, and yet we're the only one? Because that's the only thing that we're told. And if we go to the Bible expecting it to, as you stated, Dad, telling us everything about anything, then we're going to be disappointed because it tells us the most important thing about the most important one. Yeah, and, and when it, we get that straight... The Bible tells us that uh, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I'm fully known. Uh, there's going to come a time when we see the Lord face to face. We're going to understand everything we need to understand about everything. But Talk about the unified uh, field theory. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that we need to understand is this. When we take a look at the, even the scientific method, which seems to be part of the, the gist of this conversation, Um, The scientific method would not have arisen uh, in, say, a uh, a, a culture that was not influenced by Christian thought. In other words, uh, the the fact that uh, people understood that there was a creator uh, behind all things and that he was a purposeful creator and an intelligent creator, this is what sparked the scientific revolution. When you take a look at Sir Isaac Newton, for instance, you know, one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, Uh, one of the funny things about Sir Isaac Newton is, uh, you know, he said, well, you know, the law of gravity and all these things and the laws of motion, uh, that's all great. But boy, you know, the most valuable thing I ever did were my Bible commentaries. Uh, Really fascinating. Uh, Johannes Kepler, uh, the fellow who discovered the planet uh, Uranus, uh, said, oh, God, I am thinking your thoughts after you. You know, and, and so these individuals in the, what we would call the Renaissance, the Renaissance wasn't the rebirth of humanistic mm-hmm. rationalism. It was the rediscovery of a biblical worldview. It was the fact that the scriptures, which had been withheld by the powers that be for centuries, were now being made available. And because of this radical and revolutionary worldview, suddenly scientific issues became uh, very sharply focused. Uh, You know, uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, put it this way, and I thought it was a brilliant quote. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I also see everything else. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's probably the best place to leave these kind of issues.
That's lovely. And it's also worth noting another, another reason why the Renaissance was such a time of reawakening wasn't because Europe just decided to be ignorant for the last couple centuries. It's because Islam was cutting off all trade with the rest of the world and each other. And on top of our ancestors, the Vikings and the Mongols from the east, no one could do anything but hide in fortresses and castles with the paid bodyguards, knights of the people who had the wherewithal to employ them. The fact that we could now travel freely, trade freely, and we had the ability to fight back against the now stagnant at this point Ottoman expansion was the reason why the Renaissance was able to jump off the way that it did. Islam wasn't persecuting them as much anymore. Yeah, that mm. certainly was a factor. But the other factor, obviously, was that people like John Wycliffe, uh, at the expense of his own life mm. in Great Britain, made the scriptures available to people in a language they could understand. Yep. Um, John Huss, these other people like this, were burned at the stake, not by Mongols or by Islamists. They were burned at the stake by the church because they didn't want people to have access mm. to the scriptures. So You uh, could argue that the Protestant Reformation is what eventually caused the Renaissance. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for the question, and we hope that you were ministered to that by that. Jay Sanchez wants to know, how many times will God forgive a person for a sin that one struggles with? Great question. Many times you ask him to. The concern that people have in the fancy seminary term is the effectual nature of salvation. How much does it affect? How much does it impact? And the consensus of scripture, First John is the best place to kind of scoot your boot on this topic is concerned, is the fact that you're in Christ. Now, the passage that a lot of people struggle with in this department is the one who abides in him does not sin. Now, in the same book, two chapters prior, the first chapter ends with the blanket statement, he who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in right. him. It makes him a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The second chapter begins, I write this so that you may not sin. Now, reality back in check. When anyone sins, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So the question isn't our actions or lack thereof. Our salvation isn't the lack or certain avoiding of actions that would result in the sin that uh, can't be forgiven and so forth. Because we can talk about that on another time. The, in a nutshell, the sin that can't be forgiven is refusing to be forgiven. Right. But we'll just let that sit out there. Right. When people are in Christ, meaning that their abiding relationship with him, their confidence in him, their confession to him, literally to say the same thing, is the acknowledgement that what he did on the cross was paid for on those terms. So when I bring my sin before him, you bring, well, you don't have sin, but Adrian, when you bring your sin before him, it, we're kidding, it all ultimately culminates in what we call that effectiveness of the cross. And if you as a believer remain in that state with Jesus, then just like he said was his obligation, right? If someone comes to you seven times in the same day for the same sin, he notes, should I forgive him seven times? And he said, 70 times seven. So what then is the foundation? It's not, okay, so God's limit's 490. No, it's less math, more love. Yeah. We're all fans <laughs> of less math here. Yeah. That's, that's a quote from Levi Lesko, by yeah. the way. Yeah. But the point being made is just that. If you're in Christ, you're coming to him with your sin. 
there's also room for uh, corporate confession and uh, private accountability and so forth. But when we're talking about being in Christ, it's literally having an ongoing state of righteousness before the Father. The one who separates himself from Christ, whether it's by forsaking their faith, falling away, never having it, you can fill in the blank as far as the semantics, but like our uh, beloved brother and now glorified uh, example in the Lord said, I believe in the abiding, uh, the eternal security of those who have an abiding relationship with Jesus and the eternal insecurity of those who don't. So when you have Jesus, you have salvation, you have forgiveness, you have ongoing and perpetual cleansing of sin because of his sacrifice once for all. Not all but that. Not all but what you and your culture specifically want to shame. Not all but what you personally are so emotionally beat up about. It's the fact that Christ has dealt with this permanently is what you now benefit from by association, by adoption, Romans 8 says. So if that's your status before the Father in Christ, forgiven is just a subtext of that. But if, on the other hand, you don't have Christ, then as John chapter 3 says, he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son does not have life, but the wrath of the God, the wrath of God abides on him. Yeah. So it's really just an either or. Now, does this mean, okay, so you Christians, you can just sin up a storm knowing that Jesus has already forgiven you? Romans 6, 1, how can we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's why the cross is the focus. That price was needed to be paid. We're broken all the more the more uh, we grow in our relationship with the Lord when we realize I'm still falling into this, but he still had to do that for me. It glorifies him and it humbles me. And hopefully in time, the Holy Spirit can do a work. But if you're anything like me, some habits just die that hard. And a crucifixion, the daily death that Paul described, is not an easy one. Mm. It is a prolonged, it is a public, it is a humiliating, it is a difficult death. And the comparison's very apt if you're struggling with ongoing sin. So when it comes to issues that God dealt with right away, uh, me and my stealing, my deceptiveness, those sort of things that, uh, bad language even, those were never really things I struggled with when I came to a relationship with Jesus or got dealt with very early on. He can testify. But on the other hand, things that I still struggle with, the lust of the eyes, self-harm, those sort of deals, I don't invalidate my salvation because I don't discount what Jesus did to deal with them. But the same cross that dealt with the sins that have been externally dealt with are the same sins that are effectual, effective, in dealing with the sins that are still at work in me. Why? Because so is his spirit, and he's bigger than any mess I can make. Yeah. Right on. Nice. Good job. Good answer. Yeah, it's all about relationship, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. What uh, did we get to David Kibbett's question about Job on this here? Not or, yet. Okay, let's do this one then. We got three minutes left. This was an email question. Um, background: Job is talking or being rebuked by God in Job thirty-eight twenty-two through twenty-three verses twenty-two to twenty-three, and God says. <clears throat> have you, Job, entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Questions. Does this seem to you, in reading the original language, that this is a reference to a judgment, or instead a reference to a means of God's protection or salvation for the tribulation saints? In English, this sounds more like a means of protection or salvation. 
And number two, are there any direct references in Revelation of the tribulation saints being protected or saved specifically by a tremendous cold, such as a snowstorm, blizzard, hailstorm, or similar? Um, Best regards, Phil Holton. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Uh, not in Revelation. In Ezekiel, there's a hailstorm that's mentioned and accompanying other things in the famous Gog and Magog invasion. Right. Uh, you yeah. can read Ezekiel 38, where it notes in verse 22, I will bring... Uh, him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him his troops. The many people are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. They shall know that I am the Lord. As far as a Revelation reference to hail, it's not saving God's people. Those hailstones in Revelation chapter 16 are entirely for judgment. But if you're referencing what was in regards to Job, I think that was in reference to the tribulation. But the fact that God's, you know, quote-unquote, storing up uh, hailstones, remember Job is in the poetry section of the Old Testament. It's making a point of emphasis. Can God create hail from nothing? Well, he created everything else from nothing. Why not? Yeah. But if, on the other hand, you're going to say, well, this idea of him storing up wrath and this intentional picture, hailstones are a consistent picture of the wrath of God because it's just something you kind of have to take cover from. Yeah, the size of a talent. That was 90 to 120 pounds. Yeah, depending on depending if your on culture Hebrew was a pansy. Or, or, uh, or uh, Roman rendering. Yeah. No. Try to imagine a 90-pound hailstone. Yeah, I, I, I get nervous in yeah. the two-ounce one, but yeah. uh, that would be the answer, Phil. Um, Revelation, no. Chapter 16 mentions hail most explicitly, among others, and it's always in the context of judgment. Ezekiel 38, though, that is deliverance of God's people might be what you're thinking of. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I, I managed to get the question up at the last second, but uh, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the program. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be here again Monday uh, taking your questions. So please join us again back then. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.